the case dot report. Hello everyone, Orla Kelly is my name, and welcome to a slightly different episode of TCR this month. Today, Monday, April 11th, the IMO are hosting an emergency national NCHD meeting open to all NCHDs to discuss the campaign hashtag standing up for NCHDs. This campaign is looking at illegal working hours and unsafe working conditions for NCHDs and ways to improve them. Today, I'll be talking to four NCHDs about current conditions, the campaign, and what we can do to improve conditions for doctors and patients in Ireland. Hi everyone, and thanks for joining us on the Case Dot Report this Monday for a slightly different episode with a bit of a different twist. I've got a few NCHD representatives joining me on this episode, so what we'll do is we'll get everyone to introduce themselves separately. So, Kirsten, do you want to say hello? Hi, Orla. Uh, yeah, my name is Kirsten Joyce, and I am the current chair of the Committee of Anesthesiology Trainees. I also co-chair the Trainee Subcommittee of the Forum of Postgraduate Training Bodies, which is a very long title. <laughs> Very good. And Rachel? Hi Orla, uh, my name is Rachel McNamara and I'm currently working as the National NCHD Fellow for Innovation and Change with the National Doctors Training and Planning. But I'm also here because I am a member of the NCHD National Committee for the Irish Medical Organisation and also a member of the Irish uh, Medical Organisation Council. Um, so thanks so much for inviting me on. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Connor. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Connor Malone. I'm a registrar in healthcare informatics in St. James's Hospital in Dublin, and I am the National Healthcare Wikipedian at Health Library Ireland. Cool, and last but not least, Carol. Hi Orla, thanks for inviting me. Um, my name is Carol Norton, I'm a psychiatry trainee, a graduate entry medical uh, person from Limerick, and I was the former National Lead NPHD and fellow um so but currently here in my own capacity <laughs> brilliant and so i'm orla i host some of the tcr episodes but i'm also president of the irish emergency medicine trainees association and i'm also kirsten's co-chair on that very long committee name uh in <laughs> forum so thanks everyone for joining us so the reason that we're doing this special this special episode this month is because monday 11th is a very important meeting day for nchds in ireland this year rachel do you want to tell us a little bit more about it yeah, um, so on April 11th, we were having an emergency meeting uh, for NCHDs in relation to our most, I suppose, recent campaign, um, which is called Standing Up for NCHDs. And it's really a, a campaign looking at largely working hours and how NCHDs for years have been working um, far in excess of legal and safe working hours. These include shifts um, in excess of 24 hours, uh, working weeks well in excess of 48 hours per week. And we recognize, um, we've long recognized that these are issues that lead to burnout, to mental health issues among NCHDs, um, and also are, are driving forces um, in terms of emigration um, and leaving the, the health service altogether. 
Um, so this is a campaign that's been ongoing for the last number of weeks. And it's just reached that stage where we need to, we need to act. Uh, we cannot accept the, the status quo any longer. Um, and this is a campaign that is, it, it's in everyone's interest that, that this campaign is, is a success uh, because far in excess of legal safe working hours is, is not good for doctors and it's certainly not good for patients. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Carol, like, what do you think is going to be the future if, if no change comes from this, from this campaign and if things go on the way they currently are? Big question. Um, I think, you know, I think there was, where it's like we're reaching a second kind of crunch point. Like I remember when I started my intern year, it was just after everyone had done that 24 hour no more kind of, you know, industrial action that happened. And that, to me, I thought that was like a very big deal because it was A, quite unusual. B, I remember being a medical student at the point of your medical students and people were doing this. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, I really hope this works so I don't have to do those working hours in July. Um, and I think, you know, it did sort of lead to some change, but I suppose we've all seen the slow creep of kind of things coming back. And I think also the growing frustration that, you know, what is being reported, you know, to the powers by the powers that be is just not people's reality on the ground. And I think that's just causing increasing frustration. And I think even since, people went on strike back in 2014, you know, patients are getting more complex. There is increasing levels of pressure on people and hospitals and everyone to do more and more work, more and more complex patients. Just, you know, we really just don't have the ability to do our jobs, you know, across the board and the overcrowding and the dangerous levels of overcrowding are just, you know, frankly, quite frightening, I think. Um, and I just think people are going to start voting with their feet. I just think people are not going to tolerate working in that system anymore. And I think there's a generational shift where people are saying, not kind of putting up with things and people are moving into other industries. It's not the, it's not the case now where, you know, you do medicine and you kind of stay in it for life, even if it's not great. People are much more willing to make career changes in our generation than the generation before. And I think people are going to start voting with their feet. And just, it's going to get increasingly difficult to recruit people to work here. And I think... We're already seeing that, you know, particularly in some parts of the country, but it's actually creeping into the larger Dublin teaching hospitals now. And in, in the area I work in, in, in mental health and psychiatry services, like it's getting increasingly difficult or the, the numbers of people applying for what would have been extremely competitive posts, consulting posts, is really quite amazing. And I, you know, so I think it's, that's just going to keep going. And I, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, not good <laughs> is the probably shorter version of that answer. Yeah, no, I think it's a reasonable one and definitely will echo your concerns about overcrowding. And um, there's been a pretty robust um, study that was done in the UK recently published about overcrowding in the emergency departments and the direct effect on mortality it has. And it's, it's really quite striking. And um, it's had some media attention recently. And so I guess this is a question for everyone. But what, you know, what changes do we want to see either kind of in the short term or in the long term? I was I was on Twitter uh, the last few days because it's always interesting to to see what people are are talking about casually, uh, even though it is an open forum. Sometimes it feels like you know kind of a, a group chat at work, um, and it's it's amazing to see that people have the same problems a- across the country. You know, it's it's not that every hospital and every clinical site uh, has every issue, but there are common themes, and. Uh, you know, I've been in NCHD for over a decade, and unfortunately, it's a lot of the same themes that were there back then. Like Carl said, we've had points before where we hoped uh, things are going to change, and um, 
but really, really simple things like payroll is, is always an issue. You know, one of the constants in NCHD life is that you have a new, uh, a new job title and a new role and uh, often a new clinical site every six or 12 months, a new contract, uh, a new locker. Um, but also you have a new form to fill in and you have to make a phone call to, to revenue. Um, just trying to make sure that you, you don't get emergency taxed and that you get paid correctly. And that's been going on for, for a decade. And that's really disheartening. You see that, that come up a lot. Yeah. I think one thing that I, I find really, um, disheartening personally is having to check payslips all the time to see whether or not you've been paid appropriately. And that's just, it makes you feel, feel relatively undervalued. Well, it makes me feel that way anyway. Um, so certainly that to have that changed and to have, to have robust structured payroll systems would, would be really, really welcome, uh, in terms of making NCHD's lives significantly easier. Rachel, uh, the IMO seem to be seem to be focusing kind of consistently on on working hours. Are they hoping for a push for full EWTD compliance or an end to twenty four hour shifts or both? I guess. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. And the thing about EWTD is that you know it's it's not just something we should you know should hope to attain every now and again. Like it, it is the law. So you know rosters are set up that are. That are breaking the law essentially, and people are, are sort of just routinely being asked to work them, um, and they are up to up to a point. But the the knock on effects on the health of the doctor and the health of the patients, like there's a reason why these these shift patterns are illegal. They, this demonstrates the, the importance of such a campaign. And since the campaign has launched, there's been a real outpouring, um, uh, particularly on social media, of people who've had, you know, they, they've just been. I was put under so much pressure because their rosters or their their teams are so tight or so short staffed um that there's there's been people um, putting up stories of times that they've had to work through significant illness because the alternative was that there would be no one there to look after the patients um and having uh, and th- this is another issue um that we're focusing in on with the campaign is the issues around taking annual leave or study leave um, and working through illness these things are extremely common, uh, as, as all of you know, um, amongst NCHDs. And it, it's something that we've just accepted for so long. But it, this really has no place in a, in a health service in 2022. Real outpourings of stories that are just completely unacceptable um, coming through since, since we brought it up. We've, had, um, we've put together a video um, on people's experience of working these illegal um, excessive work shifts. Um, and I really commend uh, those that kind of have put themselves forward because it's it's a tough position as a as was a trainee in a in a profession that's so was competitive and um, everybody knows everybody to kind of put your your head above the parapet and say you know this isn't this isn't right and I'm I'm prepared to put my um, put my myself out there and and you know for for the betterment or for, for the betterment of care um, to you know, highlight these issues and say and take a stand. I agree completely with Rachel. One of the best things that we can do is talk to each other and advocate not just for ourselves, but for each other as well, because you might be having a problem in your specialty and another specialty may not realize it um, or then the same, you know, within a hospital or, or across hospitals. So by talking openly and saying, you know what, 24 hour call is really tough. Um, you know, I was when I was an intern, the longest week I ever did was 123 hours in the hospital. And that wasn't surprising. People said, oh, yeah, that's, that's you know, that's a lot. But 
the other people I was talking to had worked 100, 110 hours. So, um, you know, what we accept really depends on what we're willing to kind of talk about and share. So I think if we show, if we can show leadership and if we can support each other, that's really powerful. Sharing what's working in other hospitals is great too, because not everywhere is the same. So if hospital A is able to manage, you know, to cover everything and make sure that people stay within their hours and hospital B can't, then we need to figure out why, what we can do. So I think Rachel's really, it, it has hit something there, shared whether it's on social media or just over a coffee to try and, you know, get the consultants involved. They're not all powerful, but certainly they, they, you know, they have experience and they have uh, connections and some political power uh, and maybe they can advocate for us as well. But I think we can help each other if we, if we talk openly. I, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And actually, I even go a step further and say, talk to your non-medical friends about their working conditions, because it's so funny how you can very quickly normalize a 24-hour shift or a full, you know, kind of 64-hour shift if you're working from a Friday to, over to a Monday morning over a weekend. And you kind of think, oh, yeah, sure, look, I did it. And it's fine. But we remember that when we were doing it, it obviously wasn't fine. And this isn't... Um, you know, it's it's good to see working conditions in other professions as well, I suppose, and to compare and say, well, hang on, maybe if other professions don't do 24-hour shifts, why are we? Where it's, you know, um, in this day and age, really, is is this something that we want to be, that we want to, to have our workforce um, experiencing? Yeah, I was just going to say about the short term, and you're talking about short, medium and long term things, and I, I, I would totally agree with Connor and Rachel. I think one of the things that has really been a barrier to us as a group of employees enacting change is that we move so much and I think we've all had that experience where you've been in a really difficult place and it's really hard to work there the roster's you know it's difficult but you kind of have this thing of like I'll just put my head down for the six months and sort of get on with it and one of the things that I really tried to get across when I was national lead because obviously lead educations were trying to do a lot of this and they were trying to be the I suppose the in-between person between management and the NCHG group is that you know, I used to say to them a lot, I said, you're not actually probably going to get them to change this for you. You're probably going to be gone, but hopefully it might make it better for the group coming after you. And I think, you know, hopefully that got across to people. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to talk to each other. We need to support each other because we are a disparate group sometimes, you know, and we all move around a lot. And yeah, Ireland is small and we all know each other. But I think the fact that we're not a singular kind of united group that works in one place for long enough that you can kind of get your foot your foot under the table or your feet under the table and sort of make real changes and it, it just comes back to that being temporary member of staff it's just it's very difficult and it changes the way your employer engages with you if you are a temporary member of staff so I think that's a huge disadvantage for us as a group I, I really think it is and I think you know, in the medium term, that needs to be addressed. And I think in the short term, there has to be an acknowledgement by the HSE as the employer and the funder of most of, of the places where NCHGs work, that their current reporting numbers on compliance are is just not reflective of the working hours of people on the ground. And I think if we don't see that, then, you know, people are coming to the table with different versions of reality, which doesn't really lead for successful negotiation. Mm. Um, Kirsten? Yeah, um, I was actually going to say something very similar to what Carol's just um, said there, that, you know, it is our duty that we, as we move on, because um, as Carol said, you know, it's very easy, you know, if you, if you go to, if you're in a job where the working conditions are terrible, it is kind of a, a thing that, that medics do where you just put your head down and say, you know what, I can just ride this out for six months and I'll be, and I'll move on to the next place and this will be behind me. 
But it is kind of our duty to, as we kind of move on, pass by and on, that we do improve things for the next generation coming through. And that can be very difficult when you're already trying, you're already in survival mode to get through that, that rotation or that year or, or whatever it is to have the um, drive to, to actually make change. And I suppose that one, one thing that could be like a long term or medium term goal for, for improvement would be to increase regionalization of a lot of the NCHG programs. So there's some certain specialties where that's just not practicable. Um, like my own specialty in anesthesia, there's a lot of specialties where we have to travel. But this, that doesn't mean that that has to be the same for every specialty, you know, some general medical or general surgical specialties. There's no reason why, with some exceptions, why they shouldn't be regionalized. And then you would kind of have a bit more time to to get used to an area and actually enact change. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with with all of the points. And, and particularly, um, as Carol mentioned about that, that temporary status um, amongst NCHDs that, um, you know, by the time you've tried to make an improvement yourself on the ground, um, you've moved on um, or it would dissuade you from from trying at all. Um, I suppose that's where I would see the value of the union, the Irish Medical Organization. I mean, they see all of these um, NCHGs coming to them when things, and really it's when it's an extremist, if, if they're working two, three, 24 hour shifts per week uh, and they physically can't go on and, and they see these these cases coming through and um you know they they do they offer a fantastic service um to talk people through you know what are their options um how to go about things in the in the right way the IMO have seen EWTD non-compliance um and are challenging the, the statistics and the figures that are being released that's really the importance of coming together as a union in that you know these are these are contractual breaches that are occurring and your union has a duty and has the the right to challenge these issues on your behalf. Um, And there is a real strength. I've been with the union for the last four years um, and have been um, acting as lead rep uh, for the Midwest for two years up until last year. Um, I've been on the um, NCHG committee for the last two and a half years. And there really is that sense of you know collegiality with it you feel like you're you certainly feel like you're you're not alone when you're trying to take on or tackle these issues their role is to highlight issues like this um and the campaign standing up for NCHGs is really a result of the the claims and the um issues that they've seen time and time again over the last um number of years and, and how it's all really coming to a head now hmm. um Kristen yeah, I was going to just kind of uh, echo a little bit of what Rachel was saying there about um, if we as doctors or as NCHDs want to actually see change, you can't underestimate the value of having the IMO. I was just going to say, I suppose, yes, we can talk about our own working conditions and the own impact on our own well-being, which is, you know, here for everyone to see. And I think your point, Orla, about talking to people who don't work in other, dis- you know, who don't work in medicine, you know, or even work in other, in other, like, you know, allied health professionals or, or nursing colleagues, you know, I think they, it's amazing. It's always amazing to me how people who work in hospitals sometimes have, you know, because we move around so much and I think we're seen as kind of separate sometimes, it, they just have very little understanding of the, of the, um, 
the working conditions we have, like in psychiatry, like it's standard for people to work 24 hour call. It's, there has been very little move to, to night shifts or anything. I, I only know, I think one or two very large hospitals in Dublin that have moved to 24 hour call, but most of the other um, psychiatric, you know, either units attached to medical hospitals or standalone units have moved to um, shift work. It's just not possible because of the sheer amount of places you have to cover 24 seven as, as the NCHC on site and then the number of staff you have. And then the other issue is people working off-site call where they're actually on site all the time, but on paper it's off-site so they can work, you know, the entire weekend and then have to come into work again on Monday at 9 a.m. to do the clinic because there's nobody else there. But I suppose my other point was, um, I think, yes, we talk about our own working distance, but this is actually a patient safety issue. Like, you cannot, you know, you cannot stand over, you know, having someone who's worked on their 23rd hour of work, you know, seeing a patient and, and making a good decision. And I think like the Eurotraining Counts survey from the Medical Council has kind of consistently highlighted, you know, a, a correlation, which obviously isn't causation, but of people who report, you know, excessive working hours and, you know, then kind of self-reporting if they've been involved in, in some sort of adverse incident, you know, in, in, with a patient, it's there and it's there in international literature. It's not, it's not anything controversial. Um, you know, so I think we also need to come at it from that angle. Yes, it's intolerable working conditions, but it translates into, you know, a patient safety issue um, when you have exhausted people trying to, to make very complex decisions very quickly sometimes. Mm. Or if that's too controversial, you can take that out. <laughs> no, I, I think, um, no, I, I think long working hours um, equals doctors not on top of their game, which, you know, um, increases the risk of adverse outcomes. I, th- I don't think that's... I don't think that's controversial at all. Uh, Connor? Once again, agreeing with uh, what people are saying, it, the idea that it's a patient safety issue uh, sometimes is uh, forgotten, but ultimately, you know, most of us will have family members, some of us would be patients our, ourselves. And uh, it's such, you know, we always say it's such a privilege to, to work in healthcare, and it is, but it's also, um, you know, you're very vulnerable as a patient, but you're also vulnerable as an NCHD. And sometimes we take on more than we should. So that's the, the, the point about advocacy. I have colleagues that I taught as medical students and they're now they're now um, interns and SHOs. Um, and I really despair that they would be in the same position that I've been in the past or that, that we are in now having to work hours where, you know, they won't, they will feel that they're not able to look after the patient, their patients safely. Um, or that they will have family members who are patients who are not being looked, looked after safely. Um, and, you know, we, we can we can have multiple motivations for it and we need to talk about all of them and, not, you know, not just frame it, you know, as an, oh, this is, you know, purely an IR issue or this is purely for, for me. Um, certainly I, I want, you know, my working conditions to improve, but even if my specialty is sorted, um, I think, we're, you know, I'm going to have to continue actively looking at what I can do for for my, my colleagues um, and you know people people have mentioned several times now the fact that we rotate and we feel like we're outside the system and that serves to fragment us a little bit you know that you can think if you're in one specialty you know if you're a surgical specialty you may not be aware of or have the bandwidth to think about what's happening in radiology or internal medicine and then primary care and GP is a whole, whole other side so like we do need to talk about all of these things unapologetically and say, you know, we cannot as a group hold up our our unit or our hospital or the healthcare system, uh, you know, by doing more and more and more 
um, we have to make sure that the students that we're teaching now, we're not just, you know, passing on information and, and knowledge and skills, but we're also passing them on a better system that they will get better training. And then when hopefully we are, we complete our training and we are GPs and consultants that we will see that they have a better uh, experience. They have better working conditions and that they are better than us, hopefully in their job that it's always improving. Um, because it doesn't feel like that when you look back and you see issues that I grumbled about when I was a medical student that we are having to contend with and uh, talk about now. So there's, there's a lot of hope, but it does require those of us who are, you know, maybe a little bit more senior in the, in the system to advocate for people who are coming on board. Otherwise, uh, you know, they, they're going to really struggle uh, to make any headway or make any change. In the same way as we have consultants supporting us and we have to ask them to support us. And this group, uh, I think there's, there's a lot of ideas that we can share with each other, maybe here on the podcast, but also uh, in our working lives of practical things that we can do. But also longer term things like like the contract and those IR issues. Um, but it's it's always good to hear what people are doing at other sites or what ideas they have for short, medium, and long term things. Um, and some of them are very are very simple, and you'd be surprised how easy it is to to get them in train. Um, so I just say again, speak up and and share your your worries, but also your solutions. Hmm. Kirsten, yeah, yeah, I. I... I agree completely with, with Connor. Our current working conditions for NCHDs mean that we're not able to deliver the quality of care that we would like to deliver. Um, and this results in uh, reduced NCHD morale. There's no doubt about that. And I think, you know, by joining um, an organization like the IMO means that we can, you know, increase public awareness of this kind of gap in, in patient safety and patient care. Um, without sounding too dramatic or, or or maudlin, like you know, if they knew what we knew about their care, then I think there would be increased pressure on the government from the public, um, because the reality is that currently patients are uh, patients' days are increased, um, their their time waiting for for scans, uh, their time waiting to get their therapies like antibiotics or whatever, are they're all increased by the fact that we just don't have enough. Um, uh, enough NCHDs, um, and you know it's just a case of um, uh, increasing awareness about this because it does come down. Yeah, as Connor was saying, you know, yes, we don't we want to improve our own working conditions, but ultimately it comes down to patient safety, um, and uh, I think that the public need to be aware. And that um, that study that you were quoting that I also um, saw this week um, about how uh, mortality is affected by long stays on A&E trolleys. That's huge. And I think that just needs to be kind of, there just needs to be more awareness about that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Rachel? Yeah, no, I think Kirsten makes a great point there that it's about, you know, highlighting these issues because I think for years there's been a sense of, you know, you just kind of put the head down and get on with it. When you walk into a hospital, who is a who is a nurse, who's a consultant, who's an NCHD, you know, it's, it's not... We're not going around with it written all over our, our faces. And um, there's a huge awareness piece there. Um, and I suppose that's the importance of campaigns like this. Um, and I think that so COVID taught us, you know, a huge amount of things and it's certainly not gone away, but uh, certainly it's highlighted the capacity within the health system for change to happen. Um, you know, we were people are under this impression that, um you know, that the HSE, it is the way it is and it's nothing's ever going to change. But we saw 
huge change, huge positive change happening in response to a, a crisis. Um, and, the, you know, this is its, its own crisis that we've just sort of become desensitized to over the last, you know, since 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 forever. Um, but there there is hope and there is capacity to change the, the, the system and the situation, the way it's set up so that we don't we don't have these consistent, um, you know, dreadful working conditions and that we were able to retain the workforce that we um, that that is, you know, fantastically trained uh, and to be able to safeguard the, the health of the population uh, going forward. I just wanted to mention um, burnout uh, because it's something that, that comes up a lot and it can be misunderstood. I'm not an expert, but um, sometimes it's talked about in very general ways, um, uh, but we don't kind of attach a name or an idea or a person to it. But you know, many of us have, have felt it and sometimes it's only afterwards that we realize it. Um, and we have colleagues who've, who've had burnout. And again, we only realize it maybe after we've moved on to a new rotation and say, gosh, you know, this person is so different now that we're working in a different environment. Um, but it's a very real thing and it affects uh, it affects our patient care, affects our concentration, it affects our relationships with colleagues, um, and it affects our family lives as well. I mean, we, we all have stories about how our, our training has prevented us from doing things and it's it, it gives us so much you know we get we get to do and see a lot um as trainees but but it does then eat away at, at everything else and um it's a really tricky thing to 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 do but um if we can if we can kind of you know talk talk about burnout as as a as a profession and understand that our profession has changed you know many times over the last few decades whether it is the the way our health system is structured you know moving towards you know centers of excellence and bigger hospitals and training has become narrower in some cases training has been shortened and you're still expected to have the same number of procedures for example if you're in a um an interventional specialty uh where we have to move around a lot there are so many things that kind of eat away at our at us as you know as individuals um but we we, we some of them we need to solve at an in, at a local level so like having lockers you know but you know getting getting a, a car park space or having somewhere you can put your bike that it's not going to be taken while you're in the middle of a 24-hour shift. Uh, so those those small things are really important. But the, the benefit of, you know, acting as one and being in a union is that we can really then talk about and tackle the systemic problems because some of the issues are beyond the, you know, what our consultant, um, you know, can control, even though they are our line managers, you know, they only have so much control, but even some hospital managing, you know, general managers or CEOs, they only have so much control as well. So we do need the IMO on a national level to be, you know, in the background working around these issues, but also having these campaigns um, because burnout is very real. And if we don't tackle all of those elements, we'll really, we'll, we'll struggle. And um, I know that, that several of us have been involved with uh, either as trainees undertaking less, less than full-time or flexible training, but also I know that some of you have uh, been working hard to get flexible training, um, more flexible training spaces for people. So um, I think that's something to, to talk about as well, um, how you don't have to work. You know, the, the EWTD isn't a target, that's a limit. You know, so you don't have to work 48 or 52 plus hours a week um, 
there, there can be a balance and you can come in and out of that in your career. And certainly I know many consultants who don't talk about it, who took time out or went less than full time, but they're almost apologetic about it. We feel like we can't talk about it, but that's totally fine. I know you, you know, you all are doing really great work to make that available. So I think the rest of us as NCHDs have to say, well, actually, I'd love to work four days a week. That would give me so much more time and I'd be a much better clinician. And so I think I'd love to talk more about that and hear more about why people want to do that and how it's going. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And Carol, do you want to pop in on that, Bernard? Yeah, I was just going to, I was just going to talk a little bit about Bernard and I'm really glad Connor brought it up because I think it's a huge issue and I think it's been existing before COVID. I just, something, I just thought of something when I was, um, Connor was speaking, it was, uh, I was at a lecture and it was a guy who was a researcher in, in burnout, particularly amongst healthcare professionals and he told a great story where he was um, delivering a lecture to a group of consultants, I won't say what specialty, and this is pre-COVID now. And he handed out kind of a, quite a robust measure, like a questionnaire measure that kind of looks at burnout. And I think everyone thinks of burnout as this kind of, you know, someone who is like, you know, can't get out of bed or like is, you know, is kind of at the end of their tether and just physically can't work. And it's not really about that. It's actually more of a mental fatigue. And um, one of the things he said, which is really interesting, was a, a, a sort of a loss of empathy or sort of a a disconnect from what you're doing and what he said to us in that group of consultants that if they put their hands up and they said there's something wrong with this survey like it can't be correct and he was like what do you mean and it was because a third of them were measuring clinically as having burnout you know um already so they just couldn't believe this and i think the first thing we have to do is, is, is recognize it in ourselves but also recognize it in our colleagues and i think talk to people if we if you see that like connor was saying you see someone who's told so different working in one place versus the other and you know there is employee assistance programs and things like that but I think you know and they talk about employee health and well-being and, and all that stuff and yoga at lunchtime and various things but if you are actually experiencing clinical burnout you need to take time off and I think we need to be accepting of that when people need to take time off because it's not good to ask people to persist in working when they are actually burnt out, it's not good for them, it's not good for patients, and it's not good for us as colleagues. And I think we are very tolerant of it. I think we're very tolerant of it, too tolerant of that. And I think we don't want to speak about it people. So you actually need to recognize it in yourself. And if it is happening, get support. And, and if, if you can take time off, or I would be saying just you need to take time off. Completely agree with what Carol is saying. And we actually had. Um, some issues with uh, with burnout that was kind of being brought to us at, as the, the CAT, the Committee of Anesthesiology Trainees. Um, some of our uh, trainees were uh, contacting us and to be honest, the, 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 what we were being presented with was quite stark. Um, and we had significant concerns that uh, some of our colleagues were, were in crisis. And I just can't emphasize enough that if if you feel you're in crisis, like, or if somebody presents to you and says, you know, I'm that that you feel that they are, the the importance of seeking professional advice that that is the the first the first support, um, and whether that's your GP seeing a counsellor, uh, as Carol mentioned, there's the employee assistance program, there's my practitioner health, there's there's a number of other endeavours, but it, it is so important to 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 seek professional advice. Um, and then talking to your training body uh, and discussing options to take, uh, whether that's, as as she mentioned, taking time out, uh, going down to a, a flexible training, uh, to exploring flexible training options, 
um, or or, uh, or whatever, but just you know, it's it's not normal um, to to feel burnt out, even though we we have become we have normalized it, um, and we need to protect uh, our colleagues. So just absolutely um, just in, in agreement with with what Carol was saying. Um, yeah, and I, I'd like to echo what everyone else has said here, um, and just you know, um, seek professional help if you need it. Um, talk to your training um, bodies or your training representatives. So for for all the EM people listening, there's an ASTEM and CSTEM um, and non-scheme representative on IEMTA. Please reach out to them if you if you need help. And equally to um, NCHDs and any other specialties that that are listening. Um, you know, please either get involved, whether it be union or trainee organizations or um, or other groups that could be acting locally within your hospital. But 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 do get involved. And and if you need help, please, please do ask for it. Um, Rachel, do you want to pop in? Yeah, no, I absolutely. It, it's really important to and, I, and, and there, I think there needs to be more education about recognizing the um, the symptoms i suppose of burnout in amongst ourselves um but i suppose and we all i i believe it possibly somebody in this call mentioned to me the other day that it's that burnout isn't the disease it's really the symptom of all of the underlying issues that we've we've mentioned around you know consistent excessive working hours consistent overcrowding consistent consistent scarcity um and you know having to apologize over and over again for um not being able to deliver the care that you want to deliver um in in the health service in the way that it is um just something that i'd um i suppose mentioned from from with the campaign what has struck me is that a number of and I believe somebody mentioned it um, a while ago, a number of health and social care professional colleagues and nursing colleagues and midwifery colleagues have supported the campaign um, because they recognize it in us as well. Um, you know, they're they're interacting with NCHGs every day and they, they can see that the toll that um, these working hours and these conditions have on on us. And, and, you know, they've we've supported campaigns in the past around their working conditions. And, you know, it is it is great to see. But um, also it highlights that it, it's probably obvious to others more so than than to ourselves at times as to how much NCHGs tend to be running on empty, you know, a system that's set up that you're not working, you know, 36 hours in a row makes it easier for your nursing colleagues or your health and social care professional colleagues to 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 work with as well because um you know certainly if if somebody's on hour 30 they, they're not yeah you know they're not as a um being as effective in the role uh, as you can imagine um but i think it is great to see um that there there is support out there from amongst other professions um and there's a huge amount of benefit that can be derived from um you know standing together um and saying that this is unacceptable yep um kirsten yeah so the college of anesthesiologists um we had a number of incidents a few years ago uh, but with trainee well-being and and some suicides uh and on the back of that the, the college really came together and created. So I don't know if anybody knows, but the the, the anesthesiology training scheme is a run through scheme. So it's six years. You start, you do one interview at the beginning and then you you run through, you get two years of your BST and then your four years HSD, but it's, it's just one interview and you just run through. And 
what they did was they developed um, a program where you could apply for unaccredited leave um, either between the second and third years or between the fourth and fifth years. Um, and you just you just apply to the training directors and explain you, know, you want to take the year off um, where you just uh, there's there's no obligation on you as a trainee during that time. You don't have to do a master's. You don't have to partake in research. You don't have to do an international fellowship. There's nothing like that. You can you can go off to, to Ballymaloo for a year and, and learn how to cook or you can go traveling the world. Uh, and when you come back the following year, your your place is saved on the training scheme and you just re-enter the scheme where you took off. And what they have developed as well is before you restart the scheme, that there is a return to work program that you need to complete. And that involves, you know, simulation, some lectures um, and, uh, and and meeting with the train directors kind of just to kind of dip your toe back in before you fully return to the scheme. And there's a, a number of weeks before you actually go back on call. That's been a huge, hugely welcome um, thing for for anesthesia trainees. And that return to work program doesn't just apply to that unaccredited leave. It applies for maternity leave or for leave of any reason. So if you take six months to a year out because of um, mental health reasons, you also would partake in this return to, to work program. So I think it's just it's a, a great endeavor um, and that could be potentially adopted by other training bodies. Yeah, I think I totally agree with you. I think from from um, CAI, that's that it really shows how much they care about their trainees and 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 their well being, and sounds like a fantastic program. And also just shows the importance of trainees speaking to each other um, about what some colleges or some hospitals are doing well. Um, Absolutely, and then, you know, they then can take that can take it back to their training bodies and say, here, look, um, CAI are, are doing this. Do you know? Do we want them to be the best, or maybe do we want to be the best? um yeah. information so, sharing is key yeah information sharing is is key um great so I, I think we're what we'll do is we'll we'll probably wrap it up there but I, does anyone have any kind of last comments or advice for trainees at the moment um i think the take-home message is, re- is really going to be get involved be that with your training body um your trainee representatives the imo or uh local nchd groups um and to talk to each other and especially in, in, in this kind of environment to be kind to each other and to realize that everyone is under pressure um, and uh, no specialties are, are getting off easily at the moment. Um, has anyone got any other final words, oh, Carol? Yeah, I was just going to say that um, just about the group, it's kind of I'm wearing my old hat as data lead, but, you know, every site should have a lead NCHD, certainly every, you know, site that has more than sort of 40 NCHDs. There's some very small places who don't, but they're linked to others. But you should have a lead NCHD in the hospital that you're working in. So find out who they are. They're generally someone who's there for 12 months or, you know, so they, they're going to be, you know, the site or they should anyway. Get involved in the committee. And if you don't have one in your site, then ask them why you don't. And I would say the same thing if you're in a postgraduate training body that doesn't have a return to work policy, that doesn't offer the the great things that the College of Anesthesiology are doing. I must say, um, I was always struck by that when I was national leader meeting with them. Um, that you should be you should be you know like lobbying your training committee and lobbying your postgraduate training body to say why aren't you doing this? You know the other training bodies are offering this. Why are we not being offered this? By nature of the fact that we're not training in anaesthetics, I, you know, I think we need to start questioning that kind of, you know, look of the draw, either geographically or what specialty you're in based on, on the initiatives. I just don't think that's acceptable anymore. So I, I just wanted to say that um, sometimes it can feel like a loss, you know, having to stand up and lead and, you know, 
uh, and speak up in front of a lot of people. And if you don't have the energy for that, or if that's just not that you're not your style, you can you can advocate in more subtle ways. You can amplify other people's voices. So whether it's going on uh, Twitter and you know liking what the IMO or someone else says under the, this hashtag uh, standing up for NCHDs, um, even just retweeting those or sharing those with friends or like. Uh, you've said, or just talking to people outside of medicine, all of those things really matter. So you don't have to, if you're exhausted, if you've been working 10 days in a row, you know, you probably won't have the time or energy to be writing letters to the Irish Times, but you can just have those gentle conversations um, and they will help you as well, because the more you talk about it, the freer you will feel and you will help then other people who maybe have the time or energy to be a lead NCH. You can be a really good follower. And that is really powerful because, believe it or not, you know we all have colleagues that we then influence, um, and you can you can make a sea change very quietly. So don't feel just because you're you might be feeling tired or burnt out, you can still make a difference, even if it is just liking something on social media that helps to get the message out there. I couldn't agree more with what Connor just said there. I suppose this this campaign is up and and running at the moment. Um, I would strongly encourage anyone who's listening to um to tune in to the meeting um it's available or it's open to nchds that are both members of the imo or non-members and it's happening at half seven um on monday the 11th and you know just to come and and have a listen um here with the, the work that's ongoing or, or the the issues that are arising and just you know, see, see what you think, and, and if it's something that you want to get on board with or that you feel strongly about, um, then absolutely there would be opportunities there to get involved, because it's it's all about having these conversations and even the posts and what has come through on on social media. It, it's really just you know opened up the conversation again, and the, these are really they're conversations worth having, um, and if that's like that, that's just a, one of the great side effects of of a campaign such as this. Um, and yeah, and thanks very much, Orla, for, for having us on. No, not at all. And uh, Kirsten, final word. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, this this campaign, Stand Up for NCHDs, uh, is an opportunity for us to to come together and to actually enact change. Um, if if you're a, an NCHD, um, this is this was designed with you in mind to to improve your working conditions and. If you're not an NCHD or you're a member of the general public, I mean, this is also designed to to improve patient safety um, uh, and, and for anyone that's coming through our our hospitals. And it's only really by us coming together as a unit that we can actually enact change. So rather than kind of feeling isolated in in your hospital, this this is the opportunity to come together. Mm. It's great. Listen, everyone, thank you so much for your time today um, and for, for taking part in this conversation. It's, it's, it's been really appreciated. Thanks to Kirsten, Rachel, Connor and Carol, who are, are each working very hard to, um, to improve conditions for NCHDs. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Orla. Thanks, Orla. Thanks so much. So that's all for this month's episode of the Report. We'll be back next month with more EM learning, but I hope that this month's discussion has given you some food for thought as well as perhaps an appetite for engagement. As always, if you like what we're doing, give us a like and a follow on your podcast purveyor of choice. Keep looking after yourselves as well as the patients. And until next month...
May your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out. Mm-hmm.